Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am Madhuri, one of the hosts of this channel. And today we are talking to Richa Kaul Parte about her first book, Cyber Sexy, Rethinking Pornography. So the book came out last year in 2018 from Penguin Random House. Richa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us here at NBN. Hi, Madhuri. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So, Richard, let's uh, perhaps get started by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Where did you, you know, go to university? How did you get interested in these issues of gender and representation? And what got you to this point where you wanted to explore issues of pornography, specifically in India? Um, Okay, so I grew up in India, in Tamil Nadu. And uh, when I was a teenager, I moved to the UK. And I went to university at um, at the University of Sussex, which is in the south of England, just outside Brighton. And I studied English literature um, with a specialization in psychoanalysis and literature. Um, (laughs) Looking back, I realized that I didn't study very many women authors um, in the course of my degree. But I did read a lot of theory and theorists sort of that made me look at ways of, you know, looking or looking at representation that also sort of caused me to question power structures. Um, But I would say like what stands out the most for me from my um, university experience at Sussex was activism. Um, Sussex is a super um, engaged and political um, university space. I was part of my student union council for um, a year and it was being part of activism and just being, you know, being exposed to people who were fighting things, being a part of struggles against inequality that kind of put me perhaps on the path towards where I find myself now. Um, And after living in the UK for a while, I eventually moved to Bombay to work at a small nonprofit called Point of View, which is a feminist nonprofit um, based in Bombay. And here I became super interested in particularly in sexual rights like this idea that sexuality is a right that everyone has as a human being. And over time, over the years of working in sexual rights, I um, also started working in digital rights. So looking especially at the intersection of sex and technology and sort of asking questions around what it means to be a sexual person in the digital era. And in the context of an India that is getting more and more internet connectivity, um, what does it mean to be navigating sexuality in this context? And I think that is sort of the background to which I ended up 
working on the issue of pornography and finally um, writing this book, Cybersexy. So you write that, you know, the book took shape in your mind after a legal petition to ban pornography was submitted to the Indian Supreme Court in 2013. And, you know, the reasons were the usual suspects, collective morality, the objectification of women, and you were concerned because... (laughs) <laughs> okay, so yeah, 2013, not a good year for porn in India because it wasn't just the, <laughs> wasn't just the Supreme Court petition. There were in fact two petitions that same year. One was to the Supreme Court, and other the other was to the Rajya Sabha, which is a House of Lords or um, the upper house of Parliament. And both these petitions were calling for a complete ban on online pornography. And you know, in <laughs> say in typical overblown South Asian language they were quite extreme in the things they said the Supreme Court petition compared pornography to Hitler and to AIDS Um, but what these petitions kept doing was circling back to this idea that pornography was bad for women but I think when you read these petitions closely it's it's super clear that this this vague calling upon of women's rights or actually the so-called protection of women is sort of a very thinly veiled effort to stop what the Supreme Court petition literally calls a moral cancer sweeping across society. And I'm super suspicious of any laws that are supposedly made for, and like for in air quotes, women, but then keep circling back to morality. Like to me, this this totally doesn't read like women's rights. It sort of reads as an effort to keep controlling women and to preserve some absolutely outdated sense of public morality. But also, I think the second part of this response that I had to the petitions came from the fact that, you know, they really didn't line up with any of the work I'd been doing on the ground as an activist. Um, I These petitions had literally no sense of the realities of actual people using the internet and in particular, the realities of women. I mean, to be honest, these petitions don't even see women as having realities other than this like need to be protected and for their honour to be defended. And so I thought in the context of this, it was really important for an Indian woman to write something significant, to write a book about this issue, because women's voices were entirely missing from the debate of whether or not we should ban pornography for women. And I think it's, I, I obviously like didn't think that made any sense and wanted to see something that pushed back against this lack of representation. Right. And, you know, while reading the book, mm-hmm. I kept circling back to all the Foucault that I have read in graduate school. And of course, you never mentioned Foucault at all. But his (laughs) notion of, you know, incitement to discourse, regulating representations, regulating actions, morals, how should we do it? How should we talk about it? How should we feel about it while doing it, while talking about it? And I kept then circling back to how this is such an interesting moment for nonfiction in India, you know, because your writing, it's so informed and astute, but it isn't didactic in the way that I think a lot of academic work on heavy topics like sexuality and new media can be. 
And I love this sort of lighthearted camaraderie and <laughs> intellectual curiosity that you bring to a topic that is so complicated and so emotional. Mm. And all these laugh out moments that, you know, you have that I so identified with being an Indian millennial myself growing up in the mid 1990s. So I have to ask, you said that you wrote the book to bring women back into the picture, right? To represent how real women feel about sexuality and pornography. But I also then have to ask, who were you writing for? Because you wear your research credentials so lightly, right? And the literature you engage with is done in this conversational style. You have frequent personal asides, observations. I mean, you know, the dial-up internet, the Sweet Valley books, the um, David Boreanaz posters. I mean, 90s kids listening, you'll know what I mean. Although I didn't watch Buffy. I was more of an angel kid. Um, But, you know, even things like the casual homophobia or, you know, no real reckoning with my own class privilege as I was growing up. And I discerned all these things in between the lines while reading the book that made it so much more evocative for me than if this was some tome on pornography in India. So again, who is this book for? Who were you writing for? Oh, I feel, I feel like all I can think about is you got to Angel without Buffy. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I don't know how I skipped uh, over Buffy. Maybe because we got Cable late and okay. Buffy wasn't showing on Star Movies at the time. I, I don't know. Okay, well, you can always go back to Buffy. That is what I strongly believe. But to go to come back to your question, okay, so a few thoughts, I guess. Cyber sexy, it's a work of narrative nonfiction, um, which means that it's written quite episodically. Uh, it features the stories of people I've interviewed, but it also quite heavily centers the narrator, which is obviously me. Um, I've also tried to weave in secondary research and literature, like including commentary on legal stuff and um, things like that in order to place these stories, uh, both mine and other people's, in a wider context. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really like pretty happy to hear your very kind description of the book because I definitely do see it as a conversational and hopefully, you know, accessible book. But, you know, also, as you were saying this, like I was thinking this, this really weird thing has happened since Cybersexy's publication, which is that a handful of reviews from, you know, major Indian publications and also readers on the Internet and college teachers even have called Cybersexy an academic book. And to me, like my academic background, um, like I explained, it's in literature, it's in post-structuralism, it's in this very, like, you know, self-referential analysis of language. So, of course, for me, this book, it really isn't, isn't academic in that sense or didactic, as you, as you put it. But the fact that so many people have read it as, as an academic book sort of makes me think also about how that term academic operates and how it could mean such different things to different people and I think that's been um that's been quite eye-opening and uh and strange I guess but also cool <laughs> but anyway so this 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 question oh gosh about who cyber sexy is for god you know I 
I've um, I've met so many writers recently who have this who have this incredible confidence who can say things like, okay, so my book is for this wide range of people, including X and Y and Z, and and they're reading it and they're loving it. And gosh, I'm I'm just not that not yet that person, <laughs> although I hope I, I could be one day. But um, I, I guess what I can say is that so when I was say nineteen or twenty, um, becoming a sexual person, growing up on the internet living first in India, but then in the UK as a as a young brown woman, I, I really did wish that there was something that gave voice to my experiences and, and something that, that made me feel seen or heard. And and I think ultimately like I did I did write Cyber Sexy for this sort of memory of this 19 year old me or for any 19 year old or 40 year old, who knows, brown woman who who maybe wants to feel a little less alone. And, and more, more seen. seen. And more seen, yeah. And hopefully more seen. You mentioned, mentioned briefly that, that you interviewed, interviewed people for the book, right? And you have these snippets of your conversations with them and, you know, their uh, backgrounds and experiences both on the internet but also in the real world. Mm, so cis identified queer identified will you maybe talk a little bit about what that was like for you in that how did you go about selecting your interlocutors how long did it take were you very conscious about making sure that you know you were being representative in terms of region and caste and class and gender identification what what was that process like Okay, so this this question is quite difficult for me, and I because I'm quite conflicted in my own mind. So I'll try and talk to, talk you through some of that conflict. Um, the process itself was was really haphazard. I think looking back, um, I found interviewees um, through Twitter, through the women's movement, um, through friends of people I knew, friends of interviewees, um, and and I'd interview them that way, and. I was writing the book alongside interviewing people. So it's not like I did all the research first and then started writing. Um, I, I don't know if that's if that's normal, but that's how I, I did it. Um, I started in um, January of 2016 and um, I submitted a final draft at the end of 2017. So that was two years plus a couple of months um, after that we spent on copy editing and proofreading. And then um, we went to print with Penguin in May 2018. Well, we, it came out in May 2018. We probably went to print in about April. Um, but, you know, I think the conflict comes from looking back. I'm not fully certain if my process around finding interviewees was, in fact, the best way to go about things. Because, like, many people have commented on how cyber sexy is intersectional. But the thing is that I didn't really set out to find people from particular backgrounds. I just went through this process thinking that, like, I didn't want to seek someone out just because they checked a diversity box. I wanted to seek out people in general, and then the diversity would hopefully emerge. So I would just sort of put out call-outs on Twitter or reach out to my friends and fellow activists. And because of the sorts of circles I'm a part of, there ended up being a lot of diversity when it came to some things. So like sexual orientation, religion, geographic location, um, for example. 
But this also meant that there ended up being some serious gaps in representation, I feel. Like, I only have a couple of Dalit interviewees. I don't have any trans men. Um, the only physical disability actively represented is, a visually, is from a visually impaired person. Um, but, you know, I still don't know what's better. Like, do you, like, what is it? Like, do you say, right, like, I need this book to be diverse. So I will actively put out a call saying, I'm looking for people with physical impairments who use the sexy internet. And if yes, then like, when do you stop? Because diversity boxes can be so endless, because obviously, like people are diverse, right? But also, what does it look like if as, say, an upper caste person, I put out a public call saying, I'm looking for Dalit people to interview for my book on porn? Like, why am I looking for them so, so I can feel good about being representative? So I guess even now, I have to say, like, I am unsure about whether what I did was correct or not. And if I had to do it again, I still don't know where I'd land with this process. Like, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, like being in the academic world, maybe where research is probably a lot more structured, but I'm, I'm still quite conflicted in my own mind about the way I went about things. I mean, I would, you know, respond to your concerns by saying that as long as you aren't presenting your conclusions or analysis in the book as the final word on how pornography is experienced and engaged with in South Asia, India in 2018, I think you're fine. Because... I think as researchers, we can just try, you know, mm. to include as many voices, as many positions and learn about them with empathy and patience. But yeah, I think the way you described it really hit the nail on the head. You definitely don't want to go about like a butterfly collector in that just have these boxes as, you know, these mechanistic things you need to fill, whether that's actually plugging something into your narrative or not. You're just instrumentally using these people, right, for exactly. your book, which is totally not the sort of egalitarian wide vision you have, as I understand it, for the book. So, no, I... I definitely wasn't looking for diversity necessarily in how you were engaging with porn. But while reading, I was struck by how there were more diverse voices than one is usually exposed to in the mainstream media when it comes to conversations on, you know, sexuality or just being open about being a sexual person and so on and so forth so yeah I mean I guess like thank you for those kind words and like absolutely like I think it's it's so much it's what you said about like what we're used to in the mainstream media or in the mainstream publishing world that would make this be like oh that's so diverse but that's just because it's so completely not diverse in in popular representations that like anything that deviates from that seems like <laughs> In, like like it's incredibly diverse but I certainly do not think that this book or I am the final word or the definitive word in any way um about these subjects and if anything like I would be so like excited to see 
you know, more writings and other forms of representation from people, especially people from marginalized communities around these issues. Like this is, you know, I think that's maybe partly why like I really centered my own narrative through this because I didn't want to claim to speak from, you know, a position from anyone else's like identity location, I suppose, because despite being a woman, like otherwise I am fairly privileged in many ways and I didn't want to 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 not to try to claim to speak from a position that wasn't that I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense um right so. no absolutely um and while you were researching the book yeah. and you know hanging out on the sexy internet yeah um, what are the questions around pornography that you describe as perhaps unique to the South Asian context? Hmm. So I guess I'm a, li- I'm a little torn on this idea of uniqueness because I think that many of the questions around porn that I raise in the book or the sexy internet um, more broadly are quite universal. So whether it's yeah. desire, consent, sexual exploration, the role of internet platforms. I mean, I don't think this is particular to South Asia. And, um, you know, I'm sure you know this um, having uh, grown up in India or, you know, being aware of what's going on in India right now that there's this idea among right-wingers here that you know sexuality is this western import and obviously that's rubbish but I think it's also equally important and I'm not saying you're doing this too but like not to counter that by saying like oh we have a ton of culturally specific sexy times that sort of set us apart from the west like we're different but because I think desire is universal and it's important to me that um, that at least in my work that I see it that way. Um, but then again, like we in South Asia, like anywhere in the world, obviously do have our particular context, right? I mean, colonialism is a massive one. Uh, our anti-obscenity laws and more broadly, um, all of our most sexually regressive laws are literally the exact same laws that the British imposed on us um, during imperialism. Uh, we also have deep questions of caste discrimination, when it, especially when it comes to ideas of sexual purity and impurity. And there's this real terror that desire could cross these boundaries. Um, and more broadly, I think there's this real gap in the idea of sexual rights out here. Um, like, I know I keep coming back to this, but this idea that sexuality is something that you have an inherent right to as a human being is totally missing from the conversation. Um, and I'm not saying it's amazing elsewhere. I mean, like, like England is so repressed when it comes to so many of these things as well. But but yeah, like, I think that's definitely a factor here in South Asia. And then I guess in terms of the legal context, like I can really only speak for India, though I suspect it's similar elsewhere too, but like making and sharing porn or any sexual content is illegal here. And I think this is a big defining factor when it comes to considering porn in this part or any sexual content in this part of the world, because we are talking about something that is already illegal. So in order to advocate for its possibilities, I think we have to, by definition, advocate for its decriminalization. Right. And, you know, I'm just going through the book and revisiting the parts that I enjoyed. And, you know, the chapter on consent, Mm -hmm. you know, when you wrote the book and now in our post-MeToo era, Mm -hmm. 
and you have these frequent pop culture uh, flare-ups like the Aziz Ansari case, you know, reading your chapter now, so much of the discussion to me was so prescient at so many levels. And of course, in the Indian context, you know, you throw in more inequalities of power and then, you know, you just forget about the politics of consent and make it all about controlling obscenity, right? So all the Mm. examples you give from criminal cases where the quote-unquote perpetrators are booked for obscenity clauses, under obscenity clauses, even when, you know, the actual sex has been completely consensual. Mm, That was just so interesting to see uh, in how you put it all together. Um, So, you know, would you perhaps ruminate a little bit on how you see the book or yourself, you know, in, in this global evolving debate on consent and you know the inequalities of power and how it all actually gets even murkier on mm. the internet yeah you know like i think about this all the time still this this idea of how consent should work online and i feel like the more i think about it instead of having like clearer answers or being clearer in my thinking it just gets more and more complicated so Cyber Sexy's chapter on consent is the longest chapter in my book. And it's called The Fault Lines of Consent because it really tries to explore just that. This idea that consent is not cut and dry and how it's all being made worse by the fact that on the internet, right, our sexual bodies or our bodies, they exist as data. And then those data bodies are basically owned by private corporations. So the playing field for everyone here is already so unequal. And then it's on this unequal playing field that unequal gender-based violations of consent are taking place. And it's it's all super murky, like you said, right? Like it's it's very overlapping. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here. And I guess I my hope is that cyber sexy can provide some sort of a starting point for untangling some of this mess or at least recognizing some of this mess. Um, And also for providing a thinking that says, like, unless we fight this inequality, whether it's between men and people of non-male genders, or between corporations and all people, we aren't going to be able to lastingly fix consent violations. And I mean, that's not to say that we shouldn't do a ton of stuff in the interim to make things better. But I think that we also shouldn't forget the bigger picture, right? This fight for equality. Because I think that's really the only thing that's going to make that lasting difference. Going back to obscenity, I mean, if the objective of pornography laws, at least in India, is about controlling obscenity, then the real question, which is, you know, how to parse and better understand consent and to teach individuals about the politics of consent or how we can do better with consent giving and consent taking, I think, you know, the priorities really have to be set better, right? Yeah, absolutely. I guess exactly what you said about obscenity laws, right? Like, 
obscenity laws are what govern sexual content in South Asia. And these laws are morality-based laws. They have no sense of consent. So the laws that govern, that make pornography illegal right now in India don't distinguish between if, say, a woman consented to have sex on camera or she didn't. And to me, that's just, that's so deeply wrong because we're, we're attacking the wrong thing, right? We're, we're trying to preserve morality. We're not trying to preserve women's rights. And that kind of circles back to what we were talking about right at the start about these pornography, anti-pornography petitions is that they are, that they are so rooted in morality because if they actually cared at all about women's rights, they would be foregrounding consent, not obscenity. And I think about that conversation needs to shift and it needs to shift so urgently because I really do believe that these obscenity laws are holding us back in so many ways and from making so much social progress. Speaking of agreeing to have sex on camera mm-hmm. or you know, performing sexual acts on camera mm, for your partner or for wider audiences, you disagree, right, with uh, Peter Berger's theory of the universal male gaze. And I was so amused by the way you actually argue with him in the book. Um, and John the larger Bert, point. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And you suggest that performing sexuality can be empowering in and of itself, right? And get us to move to a point of more positive body image and self-confidence. What brought you to this argument? Oh, gosh, Madhuri, you know, I get asked this question so much by feminists that now I'm starting to wonder if I potentially came down too hard on male gaze theory in my book. Um, So I definitely don't oppose male gaze theory, which I attribute to the feminist theorist Laura Mulvey and then certainly John Berger's ideas of men watching women and then women watching themselves. Um, And um, should I explain male gaze theory or your viewers? I mean, go ahead. Perhaps uh, some readers could do a little revision. (laughs) Yes. Well, no, gosh, they can probably explain a lot better better than um, I can. But male gaze theory essentially says that um, representations of, this is a very, very basic um, simple, a simplification, but that um, that representations of women are, you know, um, are structured according to the gaze of heterosexual male desire. And therefore, when we, irrespective of our gender, look at this representation of a woman, we see the woman as um, a straight man sees the woman. And by extension, John Berger would say that, that as women, we see ourselves as men see us. Um, and, you know, the, these are really important ideas because I think it's super important to recognize how much of the world is structured according to male heterosexual desire, including how we see ourselves as women or as people of non-male genders. But I guess what I do take issue with is how frequently and unthinkingly the phrase male gaze is thrown at representations of women. Uh, last year, I had an event um, about cyber sexy in Delhi, um, and I was in conversation with a um, fantastic feminist journalist. And before we had the event, we were chatting a bit and, you know, we sort of talked about the idea of male gaze and she called it a lazy theory. And I really agree with that. Like, because how easily are we able to look at women's sexual selfies on the internet and be like, 
oh, that's so male gazy. Or, you know, say dismissively that all porn caters to the male gaze. I feel like the idea of the male gaze, which as a theory is, again, like I said, it's really valuable, but I think this idea has been reduced to a sort of throwaway comment to dismiss all sexual representations of women with literally no regard for women's own agency in that process, like both as creators, but also as viewers of those images. And, you know, like, it's not like I think the internet has miraculously saved everyone from the male gaze and, you know, just allowed us to be accepting of ourselves and love ourselves and so on. Um, But I just think that we need to remember that there is an agency, there is a desire behind a woman posting a picture of herself or acting acting in a porn film. And if we actually don't want to behave like straight men, then I think we need to see that agency and not dismiss her as catering to the male gaze. Right. And it was actually, you know, uh, I jumped a little when you said, oh, you know, I don't think this works. But then actually going through your argument and then especially the examples that you, you know, pepper that chapter with of women who take ownership of be it their own imagery or what they view on the Internet and what they do with it. You know, I think you had some very powerful testimonies of what um, sexual images can mean in all their senses and not just when viewed through that heterosexual male desire. So, no, I, I was definitely enriched by that discussion. Mm. So... Your last chapter where, you know, you revisit some of the discussions around porn and how, you know, decriminalization is, of course, one step. Mm-hmm. But you also point out that we have bigger work to do than just in the legal realm. And that has to do with freeing ourselves, right, from our you know, internalized shame, perhaps, or fear or rejection of all those things that we've been long disciplined into thinking of as Mm -hmm. deviant, as wrong. So perhaps for, you know, our listeners, you can summarize uh, your manifesto. I especially loved how you, you know, phrased what we should be struggling towards, right? A time when we can all be respectable authors and fun cam girls, right? (laughs) And, you know, we are messy, we are human, there's desire, there's disgust. So when can we be respectable authors and cam girls? Oh, that's such a big question. And it's not one I'm sure I can I can answer because this is this is stuff that I grapple with constantly in, in my own mind. Um and I guess one thing I feel quite strongly though is that we can't see these as individual burdens to bear and overcome, whether mm-hmm. it's holding ourselves of shame or fear that you spoke about. Um these are not individual burdens. And I think that it's important that we don't frame them that way. Um like something that a lot of people have mentioned or do talk about is this idea of internalized misogyny, right? And like, how do we rid ourselves of that? 
And you get like, I kind of hate the way this phrase is used to discount a woman's choices. Like, oh, that's your internalized misogyny speaking. Because like, who hasn't internalized misogyny, right? Like, misogyny is a way of thinking and seeing that is produced by patriarchy. And we're all living under patriarchy, right? Um, it's like capitalism. Like, of course, we've all internalized this. And so while I do think we should all resist in whatever individual ways we can, I think it's super important to remember that this just absolutely has to be a collective fight and struggle. Like, we cannot place the burden on each individual woman to say, like, oh, you have to love your body now when society is constantly telling you that your body is wrong. Like, that is too much for, for one person to do. And, and to me, like, I think the best thing we can do is, is to reach out to each other and, and to stand up for each other. Like, like, for example, like you saying that, like, when can we be authors and cam girls is, and respectable authors and respectable cam girls? It's lovely to me because it makes me feel like you accept my desire to be a cam girl and that you support that decision. And, and that's really, that to me, that's really powerful. And I feel like the way we, we can overcome prejudice and oppression has to be something that we do together. And this is also pretty much my favorite thing about being part of activist spaces, right? This knowledge that whatever I'm trying to resist, I'm not alone in doing it. And I think that that's very much kind of where I was going with cyber sexy as well. This idea to say that we can do these things, but we have to do them together. But does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I am smiling while listening to you. <laughs> and um, this is just, yeah, so great. What are you working on right now? How are you taking this project forward in, you know, what you're currently writing or? Um, I don't know that I'm taking this particular project forward, um, but I am taking these issues and these concerns forward in the work I do. I, I mean, I hope I am. Um, I run a small uh, digital imprint called Deep Dives, um, where we publish long form reporting and essays. And so most of the stuff we do is at the intersection of uh, gender, sex and technology. And so I'm currently working on a series. It's a global series. We've got authors from like various countries that looks at the intersection of big data gender and sex and I think big data is very much where these conversations around technology are going and I think it's important to question some of those power dynamics from the perspective of gender and sexuality and that's kind of what I'm working on putting together now and we should start publishing this series of essays hopefully next month. <laughs> so that's pretty much where my energies are going at the moment um i'm also getting back to freelance writing and uh yeah um hopefully we'll be able to at some point begin another large project but currently it's these smaller sort of pieces of work that i'm i'm doing well this is all very exciting and thank you again for writing this book. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I didn't know so much about second life. So, you know, it's been studied a lot by anthropologists as this parallel virtual realm and you know how social inequalities are replicated and you know mm. what this means about you know human subjectivity more broadly speaking but I didn't 
know about all the human messy, sexy encounters that go on on Second Life or, you know, even your smaller chapters on homemade porn or just the arguments you have around mass intimacy. So, yeah, this was just such a great, enjoyable read. So I urge all our listeners in uh, South Asian studies to go out and pick up Cyber Sexy. Is this available in North America, by the way, Richard? Yeah, yeah. You can get it on Amazon.com. It might take like a week to reach. It probably will take a week to reach, but it will reach. Many people have verified this for me. So... (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. We wish you all the best for your future writing projects. And thank you again for Cyber Sexy. Thank you so much for having me, Madhuri. This has been wonderful. And thank you for your super kind words. It's been lovely. You're welcome. And thank you to all our listeners who joined us to hear Richard call Parte talk about her first book, Cyber Sexy, Rethinking Pornography. Thank you all.